0: Hey, Rodney, what's going on? Just figured out my chronotype, bro. I'm a lion. what you know about it? <laughs> so, look, man, everybody's got a, uh, um, a master biological clock. This is hard because I see you laughing right now. All right, look, so everybody's got a master biological clock. And your chronotype is essentially when in the day is the best for you to do certain tasks based on your biology, so, for me, I'm a lion. I like to wake up early. I'm up at like 5.30. I get most of my work done before noon. And then you have people like my wife who's like a bear, which is I think 80% of people. They like to sleep in a little bit later. They're more productive in the mid to late day. You got dolphins. Dolphins. Did you know dolphins don't ever really sleep? They just rest half of their brain at a time. Huh. So, insomniacs tend to be
1: dolphins. So, where I'm struggling with is it's not, it's not that you are getting in touch with your chronotype. It's that you're a lion and you, you're just a lion. I don't know what that means, but... I'm a lion. Get up early, get I, after
0: it. Get up early, get after it. Yeah. So, your chronotype will tell you mm. things like when it's best for you to work out, when it's best for you to nap when it's best for you to eat, when it's best for you to brainstorm and be creative or get work done, Mm.
1: stuff like that. It's fantastic. Mm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, um, now that you've figured this out, it's similar to the cutting out caffeine that you've, you know, inspired me to start on this journey. I'll be curious to see what happens with, uh, with, with your peace of mind as you channel your inner lion inner lion bro chrono type
0: welcome back to more in common or welcome to if this is your first time here We aim to expose difficult topics such as race, politics, religion, mental health, by evaluating people's stories, thoughts, and the reasons for having them. We challenge our ability to evolve and to see how each other think. Ultimately, our goal is to expose that we indeed have more in common than that which divides us, even when we're rooted in different points of view. Crazy, right? We seek to inspire thoughtful and honest conversation that leads to action and change. Today, We have with us Vu Lei. He's a writer, a speaker, vegan, Pisces, executive director of the Rainier Valley Course, a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by developing leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Vu's passion is to make the world better. He believes that we should take the work seriously, but not ourselves. Something I personally agree with. Known for his no-BS approach, irreverent sense of humor, and love of unicorns, Vu has been featured in dozens, if not hundreds, of his own blog posts at nonprofitaf.com, formerly nonprofitwithballs.com. I had the pleasure of hearing Vu speak in Vegas a while back at a Boys and Girls Club conference, and it was amazing. There's this thing that happens when you get to experience someone who's doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing and they're having fun while doing it. It's just inspirational. Hope you really enjoy this.
2: I think people don't appreciate things that they can't see, right? Even when it is vital to their being. I feel like for-profits, you guys are like food and non-profits, we're like air. And so people take pictures of food and they put it on Instagram and they have magazines about food and they call themselves foodies or whatever. Well, no one is going to call themselves an, an airy. But imagine what will happen if all the air is gone.
0: comment, fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Um, sounds lovely. Well, how do you, like, what does that mean to you and to your organization? And then, and then how do you
2: go about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, our mission has three parts, and I think they're all interrelated. One is that we, we want to get more leaders of color in, in the sector because for reasons that we explored here, not many mm-hmm. Kids of color are encouraged to go into this line of work, and so I think only eighteen percent of nonprofit professionals are people of color, and probably about ten percent of um, nonprofit leaders are people of color. And but we are addressing issues that disproportionately affect communities of color, and so I think this dissonance has to be addressed. And the other thing is, you know, we have to get uh, these groups these organizations led by communities of color they struggle for funding they can't speak the language they can't they don't have the relationship oftentimes they do incredible work but it's still a struggle for them to get resources to do the things that are really needed that only they can do right but to do that really well they also have to think about how do we build community power which is what my organization is also thinking about like how do we get diverse communities to work together to build um, power and, and community influence. So you asked Rodney, how, how do we go about doing that? Well, I think all these are interrelated. If we don't have the leaders there, then we can't really get communities to work together. And if these leaders are struggling to get funding to for their organizations, then it's gonna be difficult for them to actually get together and meet at, at the table to talk about common uh, advocacy agendas, for example. So, I think by actually providing them with more resources, leaders of color, we can actually get people to to talk to one another and to bring up common challenges and to to brainstorm common um, you know, solutions for for problems.
0: So, I want to ask about leaders of color. Uh, wh- when you say leaders of color, what does that mean? Because I, I being a black guy myself, like I know it means different things to different people. Um, I when I usually say people of color, I mean all people with melanin like the whole brown yellow spectrum like that's non-white but most people say it and they're like black uh but what what do you mean by it
2: well in seattle we have over a hundred languages spoken in the local school district so i I mean everyone and i think it's really important to to really cover that and we've had issues in the past where people are like oh asians actually not people of color i think there's a few people who don't think that Asian people are people of color. I think this definition, we, we have to talk about it. So basically, yes, I, I agree with you. Like anyone who is not white is, is a person of color. And I don't know, we can get into a whole conversation because there are quite a few people of color who don't know that they are a person of color. And that is a completely different issue that we have to, mm-hmm. to tackle. But for us, we're building leaders who are from various different diverse immigrant and refugee communities, communities of color. And, um, you know, they come from everywhere. And they're they're amazing.
0: Hmm. And w- so, like, okay, so we're in the corporate business world. You're in nonprofit. The, the statistics you just listed for the uh, people of color, I think, so, so how many are... It, In the organization and then how 10% in leadership, that's high. Like from where we come, that's, that's a high number. Um, we don't, we don't even have that in the corporate world. And, and it's still, I would agree with you, a something to be addressed. Why do you, why do you see that as an issue when there are not people of color represented? And you mentioned part of it because the communities are usually made up of people of color. So like, hey, let me speak to people that I understand and uh, I know what they're going through. But what other, what other issues? arise from not having leaders of color or diverse? You know, people are like, oh, you're forcing diversity on me. Why? Why Why is it important?
2: Well, I mean, there's definitely the business case for diversity, Mm -hmm. right? We're just more effective. We have more perspectives. Companies that have more diversity are going to perform better. Companies that have more women on their boards are going to perform better and have more revenues. But I think for the nonprofit sector, it is... Even more critical because the people we serve, there's quite a lot of people of color. And this sort of, I think the, the dissonance there is not just like baffling, but it's also destructive. It's just like, imagine if we have, you know, like a, a panel or a committee that's talking about women's health. And it's just like nine men. <laughs> right. Congress. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Congress. <laughs> this, is, this, 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 is what, this is what we have. And no matter how well-meaning they are, they're not going to have the same experiences and they're not going to be able to come up with the best solutions for, the, for, these, for these communities and for the community overall. Because I, I think focusing on the communities that are most vulnerable benefits all of us, all of us, whether we belong to that community or not. And so this, this has to be something that we as a sector are... So,
1: so why do you think... There is such low I mean, we could talk about it in the, the for-profit sector, but I think that's been very documented in the nonprofit sector, for me it's surprising. Like why why would someone of a community not be the head of a service organization designed to serve that community? But basically 10% leaders of color, meaning it's ninety percent white. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is?
2: Oh, there's various different reasons. One is, you know, we, we're not encouraged to go into this line because it doesn't pay very well. It's high stress. There's not that much of a sense of prestige in, in becoming a social worker or a nonprofit leader, right? You're, the prestige comes from being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, not from, and also, many communities don't really, they don't have these sort of systems in, in their, in their countries, their home countries. And so, nonprofit is kind of a novel concept for many communities. It's something that oftentimes the government is expected to take care of, uh, all these different issues. And so, like, the the, the, the concept of nonprofit is uh, alien to many, to many different people, right? But then once you get into the sector, there's various different barriers as well, which is that funding is extremely difficult. There's a lot of uh, misconception about the nonprofit sector. It's just a constant struggle to keep nonprofit afloat, and you know, to to have this sort of sense of stability in, in many nonprofits. I think it's getting slightly better, but it's still we're still behind in terms of pay uh, when compared to the to the for-profit sector. So it, that does not inspire a lot of people to to go into, especially if you're a person of color and you're also expected to provide income for your family you know it's not just your take care of yourself you have to take care of your grandmother and your cousins and your your relatives from back home overseas as well and that's hard to do on a nonprofit salary sometimes
0: yeah it's hard to it's hard to eat eat and take care of other people at the same time and so it, the first thing in the mind is not going to be not nonprofit you also mentioned not speaking the language. Yeah. Uh, and not, yeah, I think that probably has something to do with it and not and not even know, like, even if I knew it was an opportunity, I might not believe that I have the ability to make it there because, A, if everybody, if, I think this is one of the more insidious things about it and it's really hard to explain, like being a black dude, uh, explaining why when I look at at the board that's 90% white, why that would be discouraging to people that look like me or that don't look like that. And it's some it's hard to be what you can't see for a lot of people. It doesn't mean it can't happen. You can have roses from concrete, but it's rare. And it it's just like this motivation thing. Like, I, I, I see Vu. Oh, my God. He's a brown dude that's funny. It looks like me. Maybe I could do that, or just like some kid will see you, Keith, and be like, "Oh, the white dude like me, who cares about this stuff?" Like, that's that's motivating to me. Uh, I think that there's an aspect of of that as well. Like, it's kind of a self perpetuating thing.
1: And are you then, I mean that that leads to the the importance of it, right? And I'm curious because you you talk about the the appeal and the draw of of the income associated with nonprofits and yet you got into it how so you studied social work and now you operate nonprofits and you're doing so successfully so what i mean how do you demonstrate that capability to to other potential leaders how how is that possible? Because I look at it in terms, and I'll backtrack as to kind of a little context because of where we're going in this conversation. We talk a lot about giving back. We talk a lot about getting involved. We talk a lot about we're doing this conversation podcast where we discuss difficult things, things that people haven't thought about. in this nonprofit ecosystem, I mean, I, I was raised, I mean, there's there wasn't a chance I would ever consider doing that for the longest time simply because the money's not there. So now I'm, you know, where I am in my life and the thought of doing it, now what are my barriers to entry? How do you get involved? What do you do so more people can think about it maybe a little bit closer? So I'm asking the question from your perspective, how did you make that work? Because it sounds like you just went for it and here you are very successful years later.
2: Well, thank you, sir. I did just buy a new used car, <laughs> a Nissan Sentra 1993. So yeah, I, I would Can consider I? that a success. Um, no, I, I think, no, all, all kidding aside, I, I feel like there's a, there's a lot of misconceptions about the nonprofit sector, right? That we are all, yes, we do have a lot of challenges and we do not make as much as, as y'all in the, in the for-profit sector. And that is oftentimes to be expected, but it's still a misconception. Many of us actually make a pretty decent living doing this work. You know, especially you run larger nonprofits. You can make a decent living. You you can, you can own a house. I, I, my, my partner and I, we own a house. And we both have, you know, cars that are, that are decent and running. And so, I don't know. I think it, and i guess the message is you can actually make it happen it, it's not a you know a, a sentence of poverty and martyrdom and in fact i think this is actually one of the destructive things that, uh, that that prevents a lot of people from being effective at this work is that we are expected to take on this vow of poverty and we internalize it like many of us sit on crappy chairs that we inherited from one of y'all for-profit businesses, you know, <laughs> you move your office or something, then you send out an email: "Hey, you nonprofits, we got all this free furniture for you." You know, first come, first serve, and then all of us are like, "Ooh, yeah, the amazing race nonprofit edition." We just like assemble into teams. You get that sweet metal filing cabinet that locks for personnel files or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> and then y'all have all this thing about overhead, and and then every. Christmas or Thanksgiving, there's these memes that go around. It's like, don't donate to this charity. Only four cents of every dollar goes to the people they're serving. Their CEO sits on this throne made with Swarovski crystals or whatever. I don't know. And this is like this is what the public believes about it. You know, and they're like, Oh, we are so anti-overhead. And look, overhead is basically the rents. And the bills, the insurance, many of which are required by law for us to have. Okay, so we're getting punished for all this stuff, and it forces us to think about how do we minimize the expenses and how do we keep it focused so that. So then it ends up with this sort of poverty mindset for many nonprofits. So and then it perpetuates, and then it goes back out there to to the community, and then it makes everyone think that if you're going to nonprofit, you're going to be poor forever. Okay. Voo,
0: Voo. I've been in board meetings where we're sitting around saying, how can we present our operating costs in a way that are going to be attractive to potential donors? Like, I've I've been in
2: those meetings. I know. That's BS. That's just total BS. And we need to get out of it. That's just stupid. Okay? I, I, I feel like this is one of the most destructive mindsets that we have. And we nonprofits have been perpetuating it as well. But I, I liken it to, you know, imagine we nonprofits we're like the firefighters, right? We're out there putting out the fires of injustice, right? And, and the donors are like, hey, I want to make sure that the money I'm giving you to fight these fires are being used to pay for the water, but not for the hose that you're using to put out these fires. How much are you using of my money to pay for the hose? And the fire pole. I don't want my money to pay for your fire pole, okay? I,
1: I love I love because you recently wrote this article about the all the, the the challenges or issues associated with fundraising for nonprofits and how it's the the baseline and the the measure of of nonprofits is based on Low operating costs and all kind of corporate speak, even though, and that's the impact and of efficiency. Uh, but to your analogy, I love it. What's your hose to water ratio? <laughs> right.
2: And if it's if it's above like fifteen percent, then you're a terrible, horrible nonprofit. Yeah,
0: but it's a fundamentally different business model because if Widget Company makes. Whatever widget and it goes gangbusters, and they sell a thousand more of them, they make a crap ton more money. If Boys and Girls Club or YMCA does runs a program really well and gets a thousand new children, which is awesome, their operating cost goes up. Like they have to hire more staff, they need more uh, locations or gyms or insurance. Uh, like it's an inverse relationship to what we, we,
1: uh, uh, for-profits are used to. So, in this article, and we'll post it, I think, in the show notes, because I think it's a really good read. And because and I, I, I'm thinking about it from a typical, as you mentioned, you're serving a lot of different cultures that don't necessarily have a Western individualistic mindset. Um, but a lot of the funding comes from Western individualistic people or organizations or companies. And I'm curious, one, do you find all of the donors truly, truly believe in the necessity for nonprofits in our ecosystem? Would, it, would you agree that a lot of donors feel that way? Or do you think it's mostly a tax, a tax benefit to, to donate to a nonprofit? Like, what, what, what do you believe? Because I think that's principle to where I want to go with this thought.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be cynical. I, I do think most people donate because they really care about the community. And they, they believe that these nonprofits can do good things, especially if they keep their hose to water ratio low when they're fighting these fires of injustice. It's just that many people do not know about nonprofits. They don't know about the, the restrictions. They've never worked in one before. And also we as fundraisers and nonprofit leaders oftentimes are trained to be very deferential to, to donors. And to make sure that we we appease to their heart and their emotions and everything. And I think that's where the danger is, is we obscure obscure the just the, the obligation that they have to think about, these systemic issues. Like why is there is there inequity out there? Why are nonprofits actually needed? You know? And so I, I've been trying to get the field to move from this sort of donor-centric model where we are all about pleasing donors and ensuring that we Show appreciation, which I actually believe in. I think we should be being very transparent with donors and ensuring that they they feel appreciated and feel like they're part of the work. But I think oftentimes it goes too far, and it's all about the donors' wishes and making them feel very good instead of making them feel think about the issues that are out there. You know, we make them feel good about donating thousand dollars to this nonprofit instead of saying, "Hey, you know, maybe you should just pay more taxes." <laughs> right. <laughs> why, why? Maybe we shouldn't even exist. Maybe we nonprofits should not even exist. You should just pay more taxes. The government should just do its work, and I can become a wedding photographer like I have dreamed <laughs> about. <laughs> so, like, this is, the, the, yeah, this is what this is, But no one wants to do that because of our like you mentioned, Keith, this individualistic Western um, utilitarian philosophy around people and how they relate to one another we don't want to pay taxes we feel like you know this is my money i want to contribute to where i want to so that's why having these nonprofits allows you to have this menu of things that will cater to what you believe in your worldview
1: is what would make the world better
2: but having a menu of social justice is not going to make the world better better i don't think
1: So long as your hose to water ratio is in line with my expectations, of I wonder,
0: I wonder how many of the donors that would that are asking about the operating car the the water to hose ratio are sitting on I don't know like some kind of golden parachute like and I wonder what that costs their company I'm just curious I'm just gonna throw that out there
1: but do do we also you know because this is where I was kind of going with this 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 sentiment. Are is the nonprofit community from your perspective, your lens, afraid of not getting the money, therefore they'll settle for the donors versus going to the donors, not just the ones that, oh, you're doing good work. I could fund you. It's saying, I want your money because you fundamentally believe in the end goal that we're trying to solve. And this person does it. So, like you said, that one donor who came to you and said, oh, what was uh, the, oh, you, you literally are building bridges. No, I don't want your money. Thank you for using literally incorrectly. Um, that was a joke. And, we, took,
2: and- we took their money. <laughs> <laughs> I literally took their money.
1: Yeah. Fair enough. So, like, is... Is that part is that a problem? You know, we, we talk about it because we're in sales, right? And we talk about this concept of being able to to walk away when someone's asking for too much from us and being willing to say, you know what, I appreciate it. I'd rather not have your business than accept the penny that you're willing to pay for a hundred dollars worth of, of product. So that's that same concept. And maybe this is me being naive to the nonprofit because I don't know how many donors are out there and I don't know what that ecosystem is. So I'm curious to just get your perspective on that.
2: Yeah, I think there's definitely fear of donors withdrawing their money and, and their support and then telling other donors not to support you and so on. So I think this sort of the power dynamic between nonprofits and donors as well as nonprofits and, and foundations is real. It's probably one of the biggest challenges here. And it's been it's been really hard. Um, for us and I whenever I tell people hey you need to we we need to stand strong and that means if we do not take money from racist donors or donors who are sexist misogynistic or whatever right and we need to give them feedback because sometimes they may not even know that what they're saying or doing is completely completely wrong um, and perpetuating the injustice that we are trying to fight as a sector here and some of the feedback I get from from nonprofits is well we don't want to bite the hands that feed us and the people we serve and i think this is a, an issue that has to be examined because you know we can't we can't go on strike nonprofits can't just go on strike because we have kids and families depending on our services so we're in this bind where we have to get funding we have to figure out how to get funding that means sometimes appeasing to donors and looking the, the other way and i really don't want that to be because i think in the short run that may work, but in the long run, it screws over our communities because it per- perpetuates the injustice that we're trying to fight. And it reinforces many of these ideas of martyrdom and the nonprofit sector as you know begging for funding. I think we have to kind of move towards this more expansive view of what we're doing as social justice work. And we gotta figure out what are the systems of inequity out there that we need to address and get donors on our side and and move aside all these different barriers, like the stuff about overhead. That's just BS, and it's BS that we nonprofits help to perpetuate because of the dynamics, the power dynamics that 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 exist in the sector.
0: As you were answering that, I thought of um, scarcity model, and and. And people, competition, and there, and board meetings. Frankly, that I've been in, where it's we're competing with ourselves because of the model that we have as a as a nonprofit, or all the other nonprofits in this area, and we're trying to get the right grants. And this grants only going to so many people, and there's, um, and and because of it, we've uh, we allow. A, we allow a certain degree of, uh, we, of crap. Frankly, and like we we allow ourselves to fall into. Oh, uh, we got to fight for every dollar. Versus, well, why don't we partner with them, maybe? Or why don't we think about this a different way to go about? Fine, because Keith, to your question, I don't know how. Or you you said I don't know how many donors are out there. Everybody that makes money could be a donor. Mm. There's not a there's not a limit. I mean, how many people live in the United States right now? Three hundred. 300 million a right million or so? Yeah. And we're not really—I li- I don't I mean—we're not limited to only U.S. citizens, but like, there's not a limit. But but because we, we I, a lot of us, and I—I'm very guilty of this—bought into this is the this is the pie, and if we don't get ours,
1: somebody's going to get theirs, and you know, it's so interesting we got, how much it it almost emulates the the economic models of, of the for-profit sector in this concept of barriers to entry, right? Like, oh, I want to do this. I'm an innovator, and, but these other things exist. And I don't know, it's going to be really hard, so maybe I don't do it. In the same way that, you know, but almost in reverse, it's like, ah, we've got to find ways to get different donors, but... You know, it's going to be hard for anybody else to compete with the amount of money that these guys give us versus, uh, you know, maybe spreading the wealth. Like, what is the... I mean, I'm sure you have an idea and there's no magic bullet, but what's the... Like, how how do you start solving for that, you know, handcuffed relationship with specific donors and entities that give X amount of money and spread the opportunity to other people who truly are passionate and believe in what you're trying to do and are willing as you mentioned in that article to give it operating to give a budget that could be spent based on trust not spent based on me making sure you're spending it on water and not the hose
2: yeah i don't i don't know what the what the solutions are because it's, it's really complicated i do think that we have to kind of we have to really think systemically about the roles of nonprofits here, and that means touching on things such as increasing taxes, right? And I, I go back to this like many of us nonprofits would be very happy not to exist if government can take care of our homeless veterans and our school systems and things. Many of us would happily be out of business. And go pursue something else, like being a quitting, scuba quitting. diving instructor or something. Photography, Rodney. Beatboxer, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, not, that is not the case. And then we have all of these psychological, societal expectations and barriers to actually doing the work that, that we're doing. And it just feels like we're, we're just pushing against the tide all the time. And even just all the money, you know, all the individual donations in the world is not going to address the fact that, you know, we have a regressive tax system, and we have just some terrible policies. Um, that I, I think I think that's kind of what what we have to do. We so any any
0: key policies that you'd call out that that are worth 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 a mention.
2: Yeah, I mean, the recent tax reform here just set us back a lot. You know, it just, it rewards rich people.
1: How how does that impact the nonprofit? How does it
0: impact? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there was just an announcement this morning that apparently there's a lot of errors. Imagine that. It got done in like two weeks and there's errors. That's crazy. But yeah, what what are the nonprofit effects?
2: There's a lot of confusion, first of all. And so actually some of my colleagues have been getting uh, letters and emails saying, this is my last donation. I'm not donating anything next year. Because of the tax reform,
1: because they can't write it off.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Because I can't write it off, so I'm not donating anything. And this, this is, a, and whether that's true or not, it's just it's it's a lot of confusion. It's actually, I think, it's going to decrease funding. In some cases, it may increase funding because I think the assumption is that people will have more money. Richer, rich people will have more money, and so they can they can donate more. But trickle down. Yeah, but yeah, the trickle down, which has been disproven over and over. The, well, the thing is. Poor people, people with lower income tend to give more of a percentage of their income anyways to charity. You know, it, it's it's been it's Wait, been the case.
1: Are there are there numbers on yeah. like what what is the percentage? Like do you, do you have some statistics that's blowing my mind?
2: I don't have the statistics, but you can google it and there's there's been lots of research that poor people tend to give more. You know, sure, you think that someone can give $1000, right? And it's, no, that's very generous. That's $1,000, but if they're like a multimillionaire, $1,000 is not nearly as significant as someone who makes only, you know, $2,000 a month and they're giving $100 to charity. Right. And so it's
0: he- it's like when Gronkowski gets fi- and I'm picking him on purpose Keith. It's yeah. like when Gronkowski gets fined $500 for punching somebody. It's like that's not even a drop in the bucket Wait, of his salary. Like fining me a nickel.
1: Yeah. Here, I I got my change drawer back here.
2: Some countries they they dole out punishments, uh, speeding tickets, based on a, a fraction of your income, like a percentage, like make, a make. percent of, of what you make. And so, if you're like a millionaire, you may be paying thirty five thousand dollars for a speeding ticket, which makes a lot of sense, don't you think? Because if someone who doesn't have that much money, they're like they're they're on the brink of poverty. A two hundred dollar ticket could totally break them. Could to totally destroy their lives.
0: So, this is, yeah, this is fascinating because, like, I think about that and if for, immediately I did jump back. I'm like, I don't want to pay that much based on what I, however, like, when you think about, um, there is this thing where people who have a lot of money don't have to follow the rules. Well, if, if my ticket is the same as yours, like, I'm going to speed all day cuz I can pay it all day. Like I might just have an auto pay from my bank account going to the the city to pay for speeding tickets versus I might think about it if it's hitting me for 35k every rip. Um, but then on the on the flip side if I'm poor and I'm having to pay, you know, uh, I, here in LA, um, Hermosa parking tickets are like 60-70 dollars a rip. Like paying one of those could set somebody back. And if you don't pay them, say you have four or five of them stack up and then you get pulled over, then you end up in court, then you're in the court system, then you're in the legal system and then bam. Like you like, lose
2: your man. job. And yep. yeah, John Oliver did a a segment on this and it's it's, it's heartbreaking.
0: It's worth the conversation. I, I would, I would. I think that's at. I mean, our tax at.
1: system, after all, whether you agree with it or not, it still has seven tiers, right? And it's based it's graduated. on income earned. So, yeah. you know, if if our tax system is based on that, why not replicate our punishment strategy, financial punishment strategy, not obviously criminal punishment strategy, but financial punishment strategy <laughs> on that for, for civil disobedience. Hey, if you jaywalk, I'm going to use jaywalk because it's one of the dumbest things. Um, but if you jaywalk... And you know you make 10 grand a year um, your your fine's going to be a lot lot different than if you jaywalk and make a million dollars a year. Jaywalking is a way to to to, put, to stop that black guy in the white neighborhood.
0: <laughs> that uh, doesn't look right. You were jaywalking, sir. <laughs> um, well but even our our punishment our criminal punishment is also based on severity of what you did. Like there are there are grades
1: mm-hmm.
0: to how you're punished. Hmm. You don't get the death penalty for jaywalking, right? Like there it's so it's a, it's a very interesting concept. Of I I like course, that.
1: how do you enforce it? Like a parking ticket, I'm putting it on a car. Does that tie to my financial income? And then there's all that stuff. But it's still I think it's a novel concept. Uh, I have a question. Yeah, go go for it, Ronnie.
0: Vu, you have this thing where you compare nonprofits to Game of
2: Thrones. <laughs> yeah I, I always say that we're, we're a lot like Game of Thrones, except with less frontal nudity. That's, that's all, the, all the fighting over resources, the fear, and then winter is coming and there's all these zombies that are out there and we're fighting the zombies of injustice and poverty and racism and you know, at the same time, we're also forced to fight with one another for, for resources and influence and building walls around one another. So yeah, we're exactly like um, Game of Thrones. We we don't we
0: don't try to be uh, provocative for provocative sake, but we will do it for marketing. So uh, when it comes to the title for this episode, it's probably going to be "We're Fighting the Zombies of Injustice." That's probably going to be what this is titled. Just going to throw that out there. I think that sounds like a
2: great idea. We I are. Like it. Yeah.
1: Coming into this conversation, there's a lot that we want to talk about. And I think your mission and what you're trying to do to bridge the gap between nonprofits. But what's for a lot of people, myself included, there is that perspective, right? Like, more in common is really about breaking down experience to evaluate the way we perceive things, right? And that perspective of nonprofits, it's like, I think you're doing a really good thing, but do it more cost effectively. Because, you know, I worked really hard for my money and you're just getting it. Even though to your point, we could have this massive tax system, which we know Americans love taxes, and it's you know foundational principle to our country as to hate taxes. Yeah. So we could have this. I mass- mean, I'm in. I just want to say, I'm in California. We love,
0: yeah, taxes big time. We love them. Like we just add them. It's, <laughs> hey, it's only a couple cents for the rest of forever. Let's just do it. Yeah. Approved. Yeah.
1: You want to yeah, hang a picture on my wall? Tax done. Two pennies? Yeah, I can do that. (laughs) I'm good. Um, We love taxes. So let's have an 80% tax rate and then we can fund all of the um, programs that are necessary to ensure there is an equal system of representation for immigrants, for minorities, for cultures that just haven't necessarily been able to bring themselves to a wealthy state and by wealthy i mean sustainable income over time not not you know bill gates wealthy or now if you've seen it uh, jeff bezos is worth over 100 billion dollars so we could do that or we change the way we think about it like there is a serious need for nonprofits in our ecosystem and there are great people who run them and no it's not going to be this massive profit earner but no it's not signing up for poverty to 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 just sign up for poverty because i want to do good and it's it's a weird perspective that we need to i think help change as it pertains to american social good and i'm hoping hey even our listeners whoever listens to this forever and all time can gain that perspective. Cause I don't know how many people go out there and talk to nonprofit leaders. I've never talked to one until today. Are you serious? We're amazing. Okay. I, I clearly <laughs> I've talked kind of a big deal. I, out I, here. I did recently talk to the um, director of reentry for the city of Cleveland. And that was a, an incredibly fascinating conversation.
2: I, I would say that uh, I think people don't appreciate things that they can't see. Right. Even when it is vital to their being. I feel like for profits, you guys are like food. And nonprofits, we're like air. Right? Mm. And so people take pictures of food and they put it on Instagram and they have magazines about food and they call themselves foodies or whatever. Well, no one is gonna call themselves an, an airy. Right? No one's gonna go around taking pictures of air and put it on Instagram. But imagine what will happen mm. if all the air is gone. Like this is this is non profits right here. Right, all the stuff out there, like the safety of the neighborhood, the fact that you go to zoos and museums which are nonprofits, the fact that you go to hospitals, which are also nonprofits, many of the arts organizations, the benches, the parks, those are all nonprofits or pay for, helped by nonprofits. The fact that you may not be stepping on litter is probably because there's a nonprofit helping to address that, you know? Or the fact that you may not um, get assaulted because there's nonprofits working on community safety. We don't see these things until we get really affected by them. You know, you don't appreciate the nonprofit that is a senior center until you grow old or maybe your parents grow old. And you're like, oh, crap, I need to find someplace to entertain my, my aging parents. What do I do? Oh, well, there's a senior center. But until that happens, you don't appreciate that. Right. There are nonprofits working on cyberbullying, which you're not going to pay attention to until you have kids and they're being bullied online. And then you think about, oh, man, maybe I should donate to this, to this organization that does that. But until then, they don't even exist to you. And I think this is it's, one of the things we have to change. And it's also an, uh, an onus on us, the nonprofit sector, to really change perception of, of, the, of the mainstream public on, on how we are perceived. Because the work we do is vital, but it's not appreciated. And then also what you mentioned, Keith, which is, well, you know, this is my hard-earned money. And I'm just going to give it to you and you're just going to do whatever and I'm just going to trust that you're going to be okay and you're not going to just go to Tahiti with this money that I'm giving you. I think this is this is the perception that is so damaging, which is this perception that, you know, this is my hard-earned money. I don't benefit. I'm just helping. I'm just giving this money so that you can help all these poor people out there versus this feeling that, hey, I belong to this community. And I need to invest in this community as well because I live here too, right? I always say because I I I used to work um, a lot in education and equity, which is you know we have a lot of schools where they can raise a lot of money because they have parents who work in Amazon and Microsoft and Boeing and so on. I think one school raised three hundred thousand dollars in one night, and then there are schools like the school that my wife used to teach at, where it's like ninety eight percent kids of color who are low income. And they could raise maybe two thousand dollars doing a book sale or a bake sale or something like that. Right? And then sometimes we would think, well, maybe we should get these parents of the of the more well to do school to maybe put aside like ten percent of what they raise into a pool fund that could be shared with the schools that are that are out there that don't make as much money fundraising. And you know, sometimes the response in this society is, well, my kids don't go there. Why would I care about those other people's kids in those other communities that are out there? Well, I think the message that we all need to believe is that our kids will grow up and they will marry other people's kids. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we have an obligation, not just because we're very nice people that we should be helping other people, but our kids are going to marry other people's kids and they're going to wander around these other people's neighborhoods. Right. We have an obligation, our own self-preservation to ensure that everyone is out there doing well, because when everyone does well, then we and our kids, we do well, too.
0: Man. Yeah. Yeah. That was My hot takes were going to be one. I heard you say if the bottom line gets raised, then the top line gets raised. Like if we help <clears> the people <throat> down here, they're going to do better. Streets are going to be safer uh
1: people everybody's gonna more you, you're going to get to keep more of that hard-earned money you write it in your you write it in your article and this is something Rodney and I talk about a lot uh just in general from from a, a life satisfaction standpoint if we measured nonprofits in some of the way they serve it and the happiness of the people receiving the good would that not be a success by standards measured of course that wouldn't be a success but why why not because the happier they are the more hope they have the more hope they have the more they engage the more they engage the more they contribute the more they contribute the more society benefits and then we all get better yeah i think it's 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 one of those things you know we talk about the way people grow to perceive based on stereotypes and prejudices and unconscious bias that we have doesn't always have to be oh my 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 unconscious bias is associated with me walking on the other side of the street because a black guy is coming in my direction and i feel threatened even though i don't know why Um, we talk about it in one of our episodes the idea of unconscious bias being you know the way a math teacher treats its female his female students versus his male students and the impact that that has over time this this subsequent unconscious bias towards nonprofits ultimately impacts the funding ecosystem of nonprofits. It impacts the mental ecosystem of the nonprofits themselves and how they secure fundings and how they secure funding and the fear of it. And then ultimately how they serve their people and then their people who receive the benefits ultimately are impacted. And- Little by little, we need to to find a way to to turn it to a more positive ecosystem.
0: And I would say that's a shift that I've noticed in even the club that I'm working at. We we've, we're talking more about well, or or trying to figure out what are the graduation rates based on the kids that we're assisting and helping. How is this affecting crime over the? You know, over the four-year, five-year picture in the Venice area. Um, so the, qu- but then there's a question I have for you. So, Keith, hard-earned money. This, this money that I earned, I made it here. I'm doing this. I, I, Vu. What's your, what's your take on meritocracy?
2: It doesn't exist. I don't think it. I don't think it exists. I think this is, and the belief that it exists is probably fostering a lot of these challenges. You know, you mentioned the unconscious biases and things, um, Keith, you know, I think in an ideal world, yes, we would be going based on meritocracy, but that's not, that's not the world that we live in. That is an ideal world that we have. You know, they've done lots and lots of studies where, for example, and you know, you know this, where they have the same resumes and some of the resumes have black sounding names. Some of the resumes have white sounding names and they're the exact same resumes, right? But the ones with black sounding names are going to get fewer interviews. And they actually did another study, which is very similar, which is having like a a legal uh, paper, the same one. And then they have some that are authored by black-sounding names, some with white-sounding names. And they ask people within a small uh, amount of time to find as many typos on there as possible. And guess what? The ones with the black-sounding names, people found more typos. (laughs) And for...
0: for for the just to throw out there for those who may not know what meritocracy is, meritocracy is the concept that you succeed based on the merit of your own achievement. Your you, your achievement is based on the work you put in. Yes. Period.
2: And I'm arguing that that doesn't really exist because if that exists, we wouldn't have these studies where the exact same resumes with just the only difference that the names sound you know black or or white.
1: Our brain fundamentally cannot process a meritocracy. It can't just based on the way we see and perceive other people, and the way we ultimately and it and it starts very very early before we're even aware of it, and the way we're raised, and all these other things. And I think it's so important that we incrementally try to break down these things so we're aware. Hey, this 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 stuff matters. And it's not a charity. Yes, it's a 501c3, but it's not a charity designed to say, hey, Vu, here's here's $100, now go eat for a week, right? Like, <laughs> it's a charity designed for, hey, Vu, here's $100, so I can serve people who are underserved by society, by the government, or whatever the case may be by their just upbringing, their opportunities that they've been presented. And I'll be honest, I've not thought about these things before personally um, because I've never been challenged to think about them. I haven't thought of nonprofits that way. And this is causing me to rethink the way I think about giving in the community and how I think about giving to organizations that need someone to, you know, people to give based on care for the cause, not just based on care for the water. But. uh the air thing though i think the air thing means a lot more
0: in la we have crappy air <laughs> I and mean, i look at air quality all i mean it's not it's not it's not shanghai but we're not far from there uh so not as, bad as it was in what the 90s, 90s? no it's better it's yeah. better than t- uh how long have i been here what year Ten what year years? is this 18 you've been there 10 years uh Nine, when I first got here, I remember looking at the plane and saying, oh, these clouds are really low. And the guy next to me was like, those aren't clouds, kid. And and you could see the smog layer if you were in a building downtown or if you're looking downtown. But now, it's pretty much gone. Like, I don't even notice it anymore until I go to some place like San Diego or Seattle and it's like, oh, the air is – I can't taste it anymore. It's weird. So, Vu, as you – we're we're, we're going to wrap up here. If what what would you leave with our audience, with the world, if you could, if you had a microphone that everybody could hear, what would you say? What 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 guidance? What message?
2: What do you have? Uh, I I would say that our I don't know I, I get kind of hippie sometimes, which is like <laughs> I feel like we have to acknowledge that our our fates are bound to everyone else around us and to the communities that we live in, right? And for so long, it's always been like this sort of individualistic thing, which is I'm going to take care of me and my family and that's it. And screw everyone else, you know, y'all are on your own. And I don't think that we as a species can advance this way. I, I don't think that we can do that. We have to protect one another. We have to be on the lookout. We, we can't have this concept of other people's kids anymore. You know, I think we have to believe that all the kids out there are our kids. Because one, like they were, they did not ask to be born into poverty or to be born into a certain color skin or to be born with disability. So just out of fairness and, and sort of a sense of justice, that we should be protecting and lifting one another up. But also, we need to have a sense that this affects us too, that by helping other people, we help ourselves because we create a stronger, better, more beautiful community for us all to live in. And so this whole concept of charity and pity, and why am I giving to these nonprofits? You know, my hard-earned money—that needs to be changed. That that sort of paradigm, that um, philosophy, just has to be completely changed. And it, it needs to be about well, what kind of world do I do we want to exist in? What kind of society do we want to build for ourselves? Because I feel like the way that things are going, it's it's just not it's just not good. This sort of individualism, sort of uh, you know, dog eats dog sort of mentality where it's just about me and my family and screw everyone else Like I don't think that's gonna go and I don't think people are happy about it Recently with everything that's been going on politically the the social and political climate, you know A lot of people are getting what they want. They they can get, get to say whatever they want They get to be rabble-rousers. They get to be mean to people who may not be able to defend themselves because they don't have the language skills or the economic or political power and is anyone actually happy? Are the people in power actually happy? Are the people who are able to be bullies to others are they actually happy about anything? I don't think any people are actually happy. I, I think that for us to be happy as a society, we have to be changing our mindset about you know caring for one another, and like that that is something we all have to do. And, and I, I think it's going to be complicated because it's 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 going against lots and lots of you know, just hundreds of years of cultures and tradition and some of which have been, you know, helpful to building our society. But I think to the point now where it's just becoming destructive and we have to bring the balance back. There's an imbalance in the force, I guess. Hmm.
1: Hmm. The gray Jedi has spoken. (laughs) Well, Vu... we really appreciate you joining us and bringing some levity to our conversation, um, some laughter, and, and some, some really good food for thought. So, this is More in Common, and as always, thank you for tuning in.